Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio, Episode 3. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season, and to our festival members and donors for making this possible. Our bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and if you are not tuning in from the Ottawa area, I'm sure there's an independent bookseller, wherever you are, who would be happy to sell you a copy of any of the books featured on our podcast or our virtual season. This week, we're focusing on history and the ways in which we witness history as it unfolds, how it clings to us and informs the present, and how our relationship with the past can come to define the future we build. Our two guests are among the country's most acclaimed and gifted storytellers. Up first is Aslan Hunter. Aslan is an award-winning novelist and poet based in Vancouver. Her novel, The World Before Us, was a New York Times Editor's Choice, a Guardian and NPR Book of the Year, and winner of the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. In 2018, she served as a Canadian war artist working with Canadian and NATO forces, and she teaches creative writing. Her latest novel is the breathtaking bestseller, The Certainties. We'll get a quick taste of the new book, followed by our conversation. I stand on my hotel balcony and look to the sea and to the sky's unbridled light. On the beach below, the gulls thrash and squawk, a vagrant scrounges for cigarette stubs. As I watch him, the same thought circles. When we are dead, we will not know our nations. The vagrant crouches in his baggy trousers, sweeps the pebbles with the side of his hand and pockets what he finds there. His hair is thin and patchy and he scratches at it frequently. For an hour, I've watched him tread barefoot back and forth across the short stretch of beach. His feet have given me ample pause as I've been up since dawn, trying to decide if I'd prefer to die with my shoes on or off. Sometime around seven, the hotel keeper dropped a breakfast tray outside my door. I can imagine the ants I saw on the ground floor of the hotel tipping their antennae toward the heel of bread and drizzle of oil. The old woman is long past apologizing for the weak tea or the size of the rations. Her sort is one we keep encountering, wary of us of what trouble we might bring, even as she stuffs the crumpled pesetas we gave her into a tin. The breeze coming in off the sea is warm and fresh. Already in the morning light, a man and a woman with skin still sun-kissed from summer wade out into the bay. She's wearing a bright yellow swimming costume, her dark hair tied in a plait. Beyond them, a sailboat lulls gently in the harbor, as if the world were not in tatters, as if this were simply another September day. Further out again, past the twin points of the headland, a merchant ship steams south, heading toward Barcelona, or perhaps as far as Tangier. My death in front of me as I stand here, as palpable as that boat cutting through the water. You know, what a great, I'm, I'm so glad you read that piece from the beginning of The Certainties, because I read this book not not having read the back, I didn't read anything about it, I just picked it up and started to read. and what was shocking for me was the realization that came um, probably 15, 20 pages in 
that this wasn't set in the present day, that this wasn't Greece. I just assumed that these were Syrians. And there's this moment for me as a reader where the weight of the fact that your story, or the part of your story, is set in the 40s and the kind of misery that you're describing is still going on, unchanged. Syria was the inspiration uh, for the book, for sure. I mean, when I was thinking about my novel and I had some themes and ideas, you know, I was also very aware, I mean, if you, if you remember four or five years ago, just the, the influx of news and the images. And, um, and I think for many, but not all of us Canadians, you know, living our relatively good lives with our, you know, healthcare and, and our, um, you know, peace, uh, and that, which is not to say that there are not grave problems in our country and the infrastructure around uh, equality and in the environment, the way Indigenous peoples are treated. There's all kinds of things that we need to work on. But on the whole, we don't get up and move through our day fearful of the corner we're going to turn around. And so for those of us, you know, not all again, but many of us, for me, I was like, wow, I'm watching this, the world unravel and I'm watching this story of people fleeing and I don't know how to be in the world and do something about it. But I also don't want to be a person who, who looks away. And there was this um, exhibit called For Those in Peril of, of, on the Sea, For Those in Peril on the Sea. And uh, it was by Hugh Locke, who's a Scottish artist. And what he'd done was he'd taken a bunch of boats, like almost like refugee boats of different kinds. And he'd hung them from a cathedral ceiling in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And so you're underneath looking at the bottom of these boats. And I thought, this is what it's like to witness what's happening on the other side of the world. It's, it's evocative, but you can't do anything. You can't access it. You can't touch it, but it's everywhere. It's like hanging over us. And um, yeah, so, so I thought I want to write about this feeling of helpless witness I want to think about what does it mean to witness? And then does witness lead to action? That was my question. Um, and around this time too, and my friends, we were all in the same uh, emotional state around the crisis. So we privately sponsored a, a family whose house had been bombed in Damascus and who'd fled first to uh, Egypt and then to Turkey and who had relatives in our community. So we, as a group, privately brought a family uh, into our lives and into, into the community. And so yeah, I think Syria was very much, um, but just, I mean, again, this is happening all the time everywhere, right? People are fleeing their villages, you know, in, in countries all over the world, uh, you know, whether due to environmental crises or due to warfare. So I just, I, yeah, I thought, yeah, history is repeating itself and it's gutting. So how can we, how can we look at it in a way that makes us think differently as people or do something, no matter how small? Mm. And so you're describing, there's that moment uh, in, in, I think, the Canadian landscape of, of Alan Curdy's body, right? The young child that washed up on the beach um, was the moment that I think for most Canadians, this notion of something bad happening in a place called Syria that we, many of us couldn't quite imagine. And one of the things that happened is the clothing the boy was wearing looked just like what a little boy at a park anywhere in Canada, anywhere in, in the Western world would be wearing. This is a, a, was very clearly this moment where 
that child suddenly wasn't an other. But you, you said you, you, that your question was, is the act of witness, is it, does it turn into action uh, if you're watching carefully? And, and did you come up with an answer? To go back to something you said before I, I, I answer that question, you know, I met um, the Curdy boy's aunt. Uh, she Tima. generously yeah. met with, yeah, she met with the uh, family, my, our family, uh, who had come to help them with practical issues around. Uh, and, and, and so one of the things that's interesting to me is this idea, I think, we have of what's near and what's far. Like to know that his aunt is living in our community and she's, she's an, uh, like a philanthropist now and an activist and a voice and an advocate and a writer and that she's doing uh, this work, but also taking the time to sit in a restaurant with me mm. and a family she's never met before and to advise them about locations that are mm. good to live in and how to develop community. I mean, so this, it's almost like a Heideggerian idea that fascinates me, not only about what is near and far in terms of geography, um, because I know that I'm evoking that image of that boy in, in you know, the novel for, for people who saw that. I, so what is emblematic, but what is real? And near and far, not only in geography, like Syria to North Vancouver, or Damascus to North Vancouver, but also in time. Uh, and so, th so that was part of, of what was interesting me. And, and, and trying to take away that emblematic thing that that boy's body being carried from the beach. That's, that's, there's a hollowness to using things emblematically. And I think that that's where real storytelling, like with the nuances and the details and the depth um, and, and all the hooks of emotion that come from longer narratives or poems. Um, I, th I think that's where we want to move past the emblematic if we can around, around tragedy. And I, that's the, I guess, the answer then. Well, you've given me a great setup. The answer to your question is that, yes, when we move, when witness moves past emblematic relationships, right? When it stops being a sign or a symbol, when you witness something in a way that has um, complexity and depth, then I think it must turn into action. And if it, if it isn't going to turn into action, I think the viewer will look away. And so the, right. the witnessing has ceased, right? I think we all have things in our lives where we open up the newspaper uh, or we start to read an article and we think, I can't read that. So I think we all know that affect of choosing to stay in discomfort, you mm -hmm. know, and, and discomfort then again, maybe being more propelling, uh, you know, on the level of, of human interaction and action. And that we also have moments too where we think I can't. And, and in the novel, Pia will not look at her own mother. She refuses that witnessing, which is the thing that makes her do it when the opportunity to witness is presented to her again. Now, you, you made a reference there to, to Pia, who is the more modern of the two, the, the, the two main thrusts of the narrative. Her, her mother is a journalist. Her mother is somebody who witnesses and who, um, who brings a, a certain bravery to every single day in this in at least how it how it's the how we see her through through her daughter's eyes and through her archives she's a journalist who's covering civil war and covering the disappeared who is um at one moment goes is disappeared and we see um not to be too over the top but I was shocked to see in Portland um, during the summer uh, vans with unmarked military grabbing protesters off yeah. the street and driving off. Having spent all this time thinking about the disappeared through Pia's story, what happens now 
to you with your writer's eye as you're watching the news and you see the not even subtle echo of the same kind of fascistic barbarism playing out in, a, in, in the free world. Like, what, what is that like to have spent all this time looking at the past and then to see it just playing out over and over again? Well, I, I think it creates some really rich philosophical and, you know, socio-political questions. And, um, you know, I've lived in Canada. I've lived in the UK, uh, briefly in, in Australia. Um, you know, writer-in-residence positions in other countries, or I did my second master's and PhD in, in the UK. Um, and I'm really interested in journalism across cultures. And so for me to watch the degradation of news reporting in the United States over the last, you know, like especially, you know, in an administration, and I'm speaking of the, the current administration, where lies are being recorded and go reported in the news without interrogation. We're thinking about fascism or thinking about the way that the media influences what is true and, and, and allows you know, uh, politicians to state things. I mean, we could also look at a country like Brazil that are factually untrue and that go uh, uninterrogated. Um, so, so I think these are incredibly alarming times. I mean, the, the swing to the right in, in many countries around the world. So I was really interested in thinking about what journalism used to be. And I did a lot of biographical reading about, you know, the shift in journalism towards opinion pieces. Like all of a sudden you have 24 mm. hours of a TV station instead of a half an hour of news at night. And you just get all these experts coming in and saying what they think they know. And so, so this kind of shift, you know, even blogs, like I have no disrespect for the internet or for people who are recording their own, but what's the difference between a, a tweet by a random person and, and news reports now. And so I think that we're in this weird uh, time in the culture where media standards are more important than ever. And the protection of journalists, we're, you know, we're seeing record numbers of journalists disappeared today, killed, uh, car bombs, you know, uh, all kinds, you know, it's a strange time uh, to engage with the news and with the media. And so I, I wanted, I chose the 1980s because I feel like that there was a tipping point in Anglo reporting uh, where, you know, news started to become more opinion based. You know, I, I think that uh, journalism is a form of uh, profound, I wanted to say artistry, but it's not because it's, it's sheared of that kind of embellishment, but it's, it's a form of profound truth-telling, you know, if done mm -hmm. well and properly. Um, and, and the infrastructures of the media uh, to be a, a newspaper editor, to the accountability that goes into that. As a novelist, I'm in awe. Of, of that form of accountability when done right. And so I have the anxiety that, like you're saying, not only are people being disappeared into cars in Portland, but you know, what percentage of the population is selectively reading news that doesn't contain corrections? So that they, they're drinking bleach because they think that that's a, a form of you know, protection against COVID. That seems to me insane. And there's this wonderful moment in the book where, where um, these furniture makers who are able to look at a, a drawing of something, right, and then and then reproduce it, are asked if they ever put themselves a piece of themselves into it, and they they laugh and say no. That and the implication there is the best gift I can give is to be invisible and to give you um, a product in which I am gone. 
Is that how you see a journalist like Pia's mother? Yeah, and and I think as it is now, as practiced by you know some of some of our best journalists. But yeah, there's that moment where um, Pia is listening to her mother's recordings. Um, you know, around the time of what I think of as a coup, but it's previous to the coup. So she's visiting some dissidents and hiding. And Pia's thinking she doesn't see her own death in front of her. Like she's just thinking about the implications for these protesters, these student protesters, or these, um, you know, people who are probably, um, you know, on a on the, you know, government's watch list. And so, and so this idea that she doesn't see that, and you know, I, I taught a, a creative writing class, a third year writing class called Writing as Witness, and so we looked at a lot of documentaries and and uh, articles about journalists, you know, being witnesses and, and the difference between to be a witness and to bear witness, which is to see something you can't unsee that will haunt you. Um, this is my definition that will haunt you for the, the rest of your life. And you have to bear that act of having witnessed. Um, and, and I think that she is that kind of journalist where it's like someone has to tell this story, even if it it comes at a cost. And so I think that's the, the work that she's done. And, it, and it, it, I think, again, you subsume yourself to the point that ideas of self-protection and your own, you know, uh, and that, that isn't to say too, there isn't that for, for people working in these fields, that there isn't almost like a biological compulsion, you know, to do that kind of work. I want to ask you about the basic, um, the structure, how you chose First of all, that it would begin with a young girl, who we later learn is Pia, meeting the unnamed narrator of the first part of the book. They have this very brief encounter uh, and then go their separate ways. Um, how did you build that structure? I never know the ending of a book that I write. I'm one of those uh, where I'm on the level of the sentence and so I'm just in, in the world. Um, so I early on had them meeting but in, you know, for many novelists, the structure you end up with is a failed result of the book you tried to write you know, in, in a strange way. So I had a set of intentions uh, around people across time having a relationship, more almost between Pia's mother, the journalist, and, and the unnamed protagonist. But, but when I was on Isla in Scotland, which is where I went a number of times to research the island and the shipwrecks, and I wanted it to be an allegorical island, but I went to Isla, Isla a bunch of times, I found a journal um, by a sergeant who had committed that act at the end of the uh, war uh, where bodies had come up on the beach and he documented them. And was, uh, he was someone who made a difference for the, the relatives of the dead. And his journals were, I call them haunted documents because the pages that I was looking at were on the beach on his you know, knee or on his lap or in his hand as he's doing the thing that Pia, that Pia does. And I want to be that person. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm interested in being that person. One of the, uh, one of the three travelers, um, you know, in, in the 40s section of the book is a painter, uh, Bernard, and, and he's got a line. Um, there are days I think I'll never have the courage to look at the world through a painter's eyes again. And I wonder, did you confront that writing this? Do you feel like you were pushing the limit of your ability to sustain your to, to sustain your, your your gaze? Yeah, I I felt you know until I answered the question of does witness turn to action like or are they two separate things until I and, until I really 
uh, resolve that, I felt like I was writing for my life. I thought if, if there's no point, if writing does nothing, right? If, if, if being a, a novelist does nothing, then I would stop, you know, then there's no point in, in the years and the thinking, uh, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, there, there were definitely points writing this book when comparing my actions in the world to my friends, you know, or to journalists or to other uh, people who do where I thought, well, if, if I'm wrong about this, if I'm wrong about writing, then I'll take up dog walking or you know, mm. I'll find, you know, I'll find some other way. So I, I was writing uh, for my life and, and I'm not smugly complacent that, oh God, okay. You know what? I, mm. I did something, but every time I have a conversation like this with you and we are, our, our minds are meeting on the topic of witnessing and doing or mm. and someone listens to it and their thinking shifts then I think okay you know it's not nothing it's, you know it's not nothing and I think the emotionality of a novel if done well creates like on the whole a kind of transformative experience for the reader right that's my hope anyway that if, mm. if I've done it well yeah then then people will see the world a little bit differently than they did before We've talked a little bit about um, Pia and about the unnamed narrator uh, who is who is escaping uh, Nazi Germany, and uh, the narrator is is um, uh, basically thinking or or directing his thoughts to Pia, who is this young girl that he just met at a cafe and was just struck by something. Uh, they had a moment of of human connection. Why doesn't he have a name? And what is it about that moment where he sees this little girl that was so fundamental for you in terms of how you structured the book? You know, I think that one of the reasons he doesn't have a name is, you know, Walter Benjamin has this idea that it's the unnamed, you know, people in history who are the most difficult to remember. And, and that the, I think his implication is that it's honorable to turn your attention to the unnamed. Um, uh, and so that, but also because I did borrow from Walter Benjamin's biography. I mean, he was a philosopher, literary critic, um, German Jew who was in France, who was trying to get, as my protagonist is, uh, out of France, uh, through Spain, to Portugal, to the US, uh, and who died in Port Bou in 1940. Um, so I, I think I wanted to leave space for Walter Benjamin's biography to haunt my character. I mean, they have many things in, in common in terms of some of their, um, I think, the, a philosophical kind of weight or energy. Um, uh, so, so I wanted to leave some space for all those hauntings to occur, like the, the unnamed person in history, the migrant, the refugee, but also Benjamin. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think that I'm interested in intersections and, and in chance meetings and in how those things can work. And so I think I knew when he met this five-year-old that there would be this weird um, unfolding, you know, that, that it, and sometimes that it's like we don't recognize. For her as a young girl, I think this image of a refugee, of, of this haunted human being in a way, um, I think it stayed with her. And, and I think this is part of how we as human beings move through our lives. We have these apprehensions that are almost like wise beyond our conception at the time. And so the, these sorts of things um, stay with us. And so I loved this idea of this 
gentle but but fleeting intersection across two times. You're talking about teaching Tiananmen Square. Um, there's a line in your book that I that I'm hoping you can answer for me now, and and that thought of education, of the tide of the world's knowledge still churning, strikes me as insane. Like naming the parts of a house as it crumbles. How do you teach from within the center of what is barbaric? We we just we have to look right. We have to look, and in my my writing as witness class, I mean. You know, these are third-year undergraduate students. Uh, many of them have never been outside of the country. We're watching these videos, these the photojournalism. We're looking at these documentaries. We're reading firsthand reports. We're watching. Um, you know, uh, there's a, a website where um, people who experienced the partition in India, you know, who are older now, are describing watching their family members being shot and killed. And I'm asking my students to look at this. And um, you know, and some of them are are descendants of, of mm. people who've gone through the partition. Um, and so I think the answer is to look. And so we have a discussion at the beginning of the semester where I say, our tendency now is to be uncomfortable and to want to leave the room. You know, the first time I taught this course, people would get up and they would leave the room or they'd put their heads down on their desks because they didn't want other people to see them being upset. Mm. So I'd say, let's make a commitment to stay in the room in our discomfort right? Let's, let's try it. Let's see what that looks like to let someone see us cry, to let someone see us not want to look because it's too much or because we come from trauma ourselves and this is tr triggering us. And so we practice staying in the room. I mean, it wasn't easy for our family to talk about what they had been through in Damascus and to talk about their experiences and to share the video of their apartment being bombed and to mm. talk about that. It's not easy for me to talk about watching my husband die, you know what I mean, without crying and thinking about illness and physical pain and you know, loss. It's, it's not easy to talk about violence or atrocity, but I think we don't wanna be those people who look away. And to, to welcome someone into your heart, your soul, your community, your, your world who's experienced trauma is not easy. Right. It's hard. It's hard because it involves the kind of care that takes away from your own progress, quote unquote, in your right. own life. Right. Your own intentions, your own concerns, your own child's needs, the fact that you lost your job, all that stuff. But uh, yeah, if we can change infrastructures one bit at a time so that there is more communication, more seeing, more standing through the discomfort and allowing that discomfort to be a part of the process, then maybe we'd be better off. In your story, the, the wedding party is, is, is on the island is removed from much of what's happening, but they still do come down and help on the beach, right? And yet it seems like many of us haven't made that choice yet. You know, it reminds me of the um, uh, Tibetan monk, Paldin Gyatso, mm -hmm. who wrote a, a really incredible book called The Autobiography of a Tibetan Monk. And he talked about the West and he said, he described it because <laughs> he's Buddhist without judgment, uh, which was great, as, as for those of us who have the luxury of inconsequence. So this idea of the luxury of inconsequence, like you get out your house in the day and, and nothing, you know what I mean, short of a piano falling from the sky or the, the drunk driver, or what have you. So, so I think that, you know, I 
I saw the wedding party in the book. I see myself as someone so far with the, the luxury of inconsequence. But I, you know, I remember the first day we, my husband and I, and Glenn died of um, brain cancer. The first day we went to the British Columbia Cancer Agency, we walked into the building and it was so busy. And I looked at him and I said, I feel like such an asshole that there has been this much human traffic moving through this building for so long. And I had no idea of it, you know? And then I became, we became that human traffic moving through that building, radiation and chemotherapy and brain tumor support groups where you meet all the other people who are struggling with this, with this illness. So I, I don't think suffering is the great equalizer. I mean, Glenn was dying and he did it. He took a stand-up comedy class after he was diagnosed. He was generous, warm, uncomplaining, funny. He didn't, he didn't embrace the suffering. He lived when he could have just suffered. He lived. And um, so, yeah, I think, I think that there's something about a lot, like this balance. It's, it's, you know, I remember AC Grayling reading, he's a British philosopher. And I remember when I was quite young reading him saying, what if happiness isn't the point? And it felt like such a, like a revolutionary concept to me brought up in a country where it's like success and happiness and beauty and good food. And, you know, and I thought, oh my God, what if happiness isn't the point? And I don't think it is. And, sure. and so if it, if it isn't, then how, how do we embrace all of these different things? You know, what is the point? Is it to, as perhaps you're, you're hinting at in the book, is it to engage? Is it to be present? Yeah. To be present, to, to feel, to, to not, you know, it's this, this idea, um, you know, uh, I've been reading um, a philosopher, a historian named uh, Zeldin, and he says, I don't want to be a tourist in a world full of other tourists, basically. And so, mm. so I think it is to inhabit, to inhabit and to see, and to see others. From, you started the book and, and you're, you're married happily and, and, and you're, you're, everyone's healthy. And then uh, Glenn is diagnosed and you are suddenly in a whole different world of witnessing and participating and, and suffering. And, did did the work help you through that time? Was it a hindrance? How how did that impact your being present in the most heartrending time? Yeah, I, I think caregivers know the exhaustion of mm. constant care. You know, and I mean, we had good times. You know, when his tumor shrunk and he could walk again, it was very different uh, life from when I had to transfer him from, you know, the couch to the chair, a wheelchair. Um, so, you know, there, there were, but, it, but it, to, to attend to another person, especially when you love them and they're suffering um, and dying, uh, that's, it's depleting. But lucky for me, Glenn really believed in the book and he believed in the value of, of writing. And so he encouraged it, uh, you know, and wanted me to keep going and was never, um, yeah, was never dismissive, but, but always, and helpful. I, I think it, you know, people who are dying get concerned with legacy pretty quickly, I think, when maybe they hadn't been before. And so I think it was also for him, he saw how much of our lives and the things we saw in Spain together, or, you know, his knowledge 
was being placed in this book. Um, and so I think for him, it was, it was almost like a shared exercise of, of seeing and, a, and of, of witnessing. And then as he became, you know, uh, more ill toward the final days, weeks, he was on a lot of morphine. And my mm. protagonist ends up on morphine. So I was giving my character Glenn's morphine hallucinations. And um, yeah, I finished the book three months, maybe two and a half months after Glenn died in probably the most existentially awful, difficult, uh, soul-tearing time, days of my life. And um, I think the message of love in it is from Glenn, you know, like in loss, right? So that, you know, there's so much, uh, God, you know, for people in difficulty, it's like a tearing, you know what I mean? And it's, it's like, uh, you can't repair that. And, um, and I, and I think, you know, in a, in a strange way, the gift of that difficulty is like the truest inhabitants of what my protagonist was up against, you know, Mm -hmm. the question of to live, right. To live what's lost in dying. You know, I wouldn't have understood it or inhabited it if I hadn't been moving minute by minute alongside someone who knew that that was the question. And, and um, I guess who gave me the answer by how he lived, you know, fully in those last uh, years, but, you know, in, in those last months and days. Glenn always said, even before he was ill, he was, he was a wine expert and his um, catchphrase was drink the good wine now. And, uh, and so we would sometimes crack like a really expensive bottle because it was Tuesday. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, so we were like, it's, it's just like, it's so not Tuesday to drink a $200 bottle of, you know, and we're not wealthy yeah. people. So we're like, but it's Tuesday. So, so let's do it. And um, yeah, I think that gave that grief and that sadness and loss in the novel. You know, I tried to shoot it through with light mm. because, you know, we had a lot of light ourselves and um, yeah. And, and I think that that's, for those of us, again, if going back to what you were suggesting, if we're inhabiting the world, even in the darkest times, the sun might cast itself through the clouds in such a way that you can't help but see is beautiful. Mm. You know, you know, you read accounts of prisoners reciting poetry to themselves as a form of comfort. Uh, so I think that, 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 you know, it's not always one thing, right? The cast of human emotions, the, Mm. the variety of human emotions you can have even in the bleak times is astounding. And you have your narrator, I think fairly close to the end, uh, say no experience in this world matches being seen by someone who loves you. And this, these exquisite moments are what I'll miss most. I think that's uh, kind of a sums up perfectly for me, my response to your book and the, the wonderful gift you've given us all of, of witnessing and of bringing uh, a sense of our connection and a, a sense also of, of that our participation in art is not passive. You've raised like really one of my crucial understandings, you know, coming through grief and having a, an amazing uh, psychologist who, who's, you know, a specialist in grief and uh, attachment. Every time I feel like retreating from the world, uh, I'm sad, I'm alone. I mean, to be married or together with someone, we were married 25 years, together for 28. Aloneness is not, it's, it does not feel good. 
COVID, all of us, right? We're all re-identifying our sense of self and, and community. And uh, Ian, my, my psychologist, every time I, I, I get retreaty in my grief or in my isolation or whatever it is, he says, no, our sense of self is wholly informed by other people, right? It's like we live in a hall of mirrors. And in the best version of that, the mirror that is the other person, the parent, the lover, the child, the neighbor, the coworker, and the best version of that, the reflection that we get back is accurate. But our whole sense of self is informed by these relationships. And um, that was a lesson for me because I think it requires a kind of vulnerability that we forget. And conversations are part of that. And reading a book and finding something that makes you see yourself in that book or see the world, these are, these are also um, vital conversations. So yeah, I just, I love, I love what you just said. And it, it reminds me that um, to move toward right? Is the, right. is the way, I think. And, um, and that love can exist in all forms, you know, between human beings, right? In a neighborly way, in a, you know, an uh, in admiration, in intimacy that, that, yeah, to move toward people if we can is always the best way. That was my conversation with Aslan Hunter about her latest novel, The Certainties. The festival is all about community. It's community that makes all this possible, and it's community that is always at the core of what we do. It's been wonderful connecting with authors virtually, but I can say on behalf of everyone at the festival, we're missing our members and volunteers and all the regulars who have become part and parcel of all we do. Here's one of our longtime volunteers and members, Daniel, sharing a little bit about his relationship with the festival. Hello, my name is Daniel Bessel Richardson, and I've been part of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival since 2009. As an immigrant, the festival helped me find and make a home in the city and in Canada by giving me a chance to be a part of the story. I started off as a volunteer usher, directing people to their seats. I then went on to write, enlist volunteers, and run the festival blog. The core of that group went on to be part of Foment, the festival's literary magazine that ran an annual issue for five years. Now, I contribute by being a festival member and by moderating panels. More importantly, just like many of you, I continue to enjoy and be edified by the books, ideas, and people that make the festival a national treasure. More than ever, we need to be alive to the presence of what gives our lives meaning. The festival helps all of us do that. And I hope, like me, you'll be tuning in online. Thanks for sharing, Daniel, and thanks for being part of what makes this all worth doing. Our second author today, we have Jill Adamson. Jill's previous novel, The Outlander, was a massive hit. It won the Amazon First Novel Award, the Relit Award, and the Drummer General's Award, and was a finalist for the Trillium Book Award, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and CBC Canada Reads. Jill spoke with Carleton University's Susan Berkwood, a longtime friend of the festival and a past board member, about her latest, a sequel of sorts, Ridge Runner. We'll start with a taste of the prose, followed by their conversation. William Moreland awoke in the process of falling from a tree. His hand shot out to seize the thin branch he had been holding for two days. Dawn wind riffled the high reaches of the tree, the smell of pine resin on his hands and clothes and face, and underneath that smell, the usual stink of animal. His heart was pounding horribly. He pressed his cheek to the trunk ahead of him. The grizzly was still down there, sitting on its arse, gazing west. 
It had the posture of an enormous, dreadful baby. It seemed to watch the distant rain clouds boil up and evaporate. Moreland stared for a long time at the gun that lay at its feet. He was too far up to tell if it was even functional after being pawed, bitten, and sat on by 500 pounds of bear. His knapsack and all its contents, including all the money, were strewn everywhere, all over the goddamn place. And banknotes had been blowing around for so long, he knew he could never collect them all again. It was an unbelievably scarred animal. The bear was missing strips of fur from encounters with other larger bears and pocked here and there with poorly healed bullet wounds. William Moreland regarded the lavishly long mud-brown claws. Sooner or later, all bears give up and wander away, or in this case, limp. But this bear was unusually persistent. The one scrawny bit of good news was that while most grizzlies can climb trees perfectly well, it looked like this one was too damaged to even attempt it. Stay awake, Moreland thought. Starve him out. Sooner or later he'll wander off. He shook his head and blew, shifting his position on the branch, for his left leg had fallen asleep. The bear glanced up to see the man moving up there. Its eyes were flat brown and cold and looking directly into Moreland's own. No question about the intelligence in them. Moreland's heart began to race again as he was filled with loathing for the thing that had kept him awake, terrified and awake for two days. Fuck off, you bastard, he screeched in pure childish fury. Get lost. The bear's expression was one of calm assessment, and Moreland knew what was coming. It lurched up, shook its thick fur, and approached the trunk again. It rose on hind legs to its full height of seven feet, and for the fifth time that day, began rhythmically to shake the tree. Thick as the evergreen was, it groaned and shook like a willow switch. William Moreland clutched his branch and held on. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the Writers' Festival podcast. I found Ridge Runner a great escape from our current circumstances. Uh, I've barely been out of Ottawa since March, so I certainly enjoyed traveling through the Alberta and Montana of the early 20th century and taking in the sights of Banff and Lake Louise, thanks to those evocative descriptions. Now, I could do without the grizzly, but... <laughs> I am primordially terrified of bears, so I, that's why I wrote about bears. <laughs> Rich Runner in all the promotional materials is is referred to as a, a follow-up to your award-winning 2007 novel, The Outlander. But I did just want to say that it's certainly not necessary to have read the one to read the other or to know what's going on. But I thought maybe we could start there. And, and so in your reading, you focus on William Moreland, who is one of the characters from The Outlander. But the title of the novel signals the kind of connection between the books, um, but it does indicate a kind of shift um, in focus away from the Outlander's central character, Mary Bolton, uh, who was described as the widow by her own hand. Um, and it, so, <laughs> so we've got the attention to Moreland, who is a thief of some reputation. Is that fair to say? Yes, I would say that's that's very fair to say. I'm glad that in the reading of Ridge Runner, you didn't feel that uh, readers would need to go back to the Outlander to understand what the book was about. I worked pretty carefully to make sure that um, new readers really 
uh, didn't even need to know that there was a that a previous novel even existed in order to enjoy this book, um, but that those who did read the Outlander would would um, you know get a little bit of value added uh, because they uh, you know they know who this uh, this woman Mary Bolton is and uh, can see basically in the boy. Uh, sort of an echo of her and an echo of Moreland. I I deliberately uh, titled the book without a, a definite article. Uh, it's Ridge Runner and not, not the Ridge Runner, and it that become the reason for that becomes clear at the end of the book when you see the the similarity really in the characters of uh, William Moreland, the father, and Jack Bolton, the son. It's it's a similarity that for most of the book is quite upsetting to Jack. He disagrees with his father's, um, his father's chosen path and uh, is angry at him. And so the, the notion that, that they share anything uh, is upsetting to the kid. And then towards the end of the book, really, we, we start to see how, how similar they are. So that's an, that's a sort of a, a basic overview of the book and, to a degree of the two books and and how they intersect and how I I wrote the second one um, so many years later, uh, keeping in mind that um, I didn't even know if the first book would really be available. As it turns out, um, House of Anansi has reissued The Outlander um, and with a two beautiful matching covers. So I'm I'm a, I'm a very lucky author. You know, both offer um, a portrait of of a particular area, but at very different times. Since the Outlander is set in 1903, and there's that sort of local disaster of the Frank Slide and the Crow's Nest Pass, but Ridge Runner is set in well, it begins in November 1917 as the First World War enters its uh, final year. Uh, it was interesting for me writing The Outlander and doing research on that particular period, the sort of turn of the last century and what life was like um, specifically for women uh, at that time. And, you know, things like there were no antibiotics and women didn't have the vote and things like that. And then when I found myself dealing with a 14-year-old child, uh, uh, I found myself in the in the middle of the First World War, and that required a, a large amount of research. Just even though the characters are spending most of their time in the woods, um, as we know from this current uh, pandemic situation, uh, a worldwide situation touches everybody's lives, no matter how much of a hermit they really are. It even affects the lives of very small children who can't fully understand what's going on, but it has affected their lives. So I had to understand, at least to a very small degree, what life was like in the First World War. And it is one of the most studied and stepped on and um, researched and recorded events in Western uh, history. So I also had to be careful um, to be very minimal with it, to just talk about what, what it would be like for people's daily lives in Canada in Alberta, in the Rockies. So anyway, that's where I was going with that. I, I did find that in reading it, even though, as you say, the war is not front and center, given um, you know, the place and, and the characters, I did find myself thinking, 
oh, there's a pandemic coming. And they don't know it's, it's coming. And, and that is one of the elements of reading a historical novel is that you know, you know what's coming and the characters don't. And, uh, and that is sort of one, I wanted to sort of avoid um, getting into that awful, awful thing. Um, I think it was called the Spanish flu and something like 50 million people died worldwide. And after a war like that, that they, they thought it was going to be short-lived and it was definitely not short-lived. And even just before it ended, there was no indication that it was ever going to end. So these world events must, for some people have felt like really the world was ending. And again, that's, that is something as a, as a novelist, I didn't, I didn't want to be living there necessarily, uh, or, uh, putting readers through it. Um, and the fact that, you know, <laughs> this book, I hope is a little bit of, has, there's a little bit of, um, you know, get out of your life, a little bit of an adventure, uh, you know, child's adventure to it. That's, you know, obviously it took me so long to write this book that was definitely not intended. I couldn't have known, uh, that it would have that effect, <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad it did. <laughs> I, I did want to talk a bit about the fact that there's there is the intersection between um, historical fiction and the Bildungsroman or the the coming of age novel. I was just going to say the Bildungsroman is a is a really is a wonderful um, uh, form or the coming of age story, and you see a a number of them uh, written about writers becoming writers. But the, the sort of more interesting ones are the um, are the ones that talk about what life was like at that particular point, as seen through a child's eye. And I find it interesting that a lot of uh, child's adventure, in fact, most child's adventure books, um, and a lot of buildings roman uh, uh, titles the the young person in question is an orphan and there's something very freeing to children when they're reading something like that the idea that they're thrown terrifyingly free and there are no parents around to tell them what to do um and there just seems to be something elemental about about that whole you know lack of uh lack of you know parental presence so even in uh treasure island Jim, I think his name is Jim Hawkins. His, his mother is still around, but he leaves, uh, he leaves his mother behind in the first few chapters, and he's, he's basically a child by himself. And that's just so exciting for, um, for a kid to read, because I was well aware of the fact that, that Jack, who is, you know, I think he turns 13 halfway through the book, is, is, a, is a kid. And yes, he has all kinds of skills, and he's, he's not your average town kid. He's not your average kid you would run into now. Um, but he's, he's still like a young guy and he's innocent and he doesn't know all kinds of things like the scene where he, he's not quite sure whether the horse can handle how cold it is outside. So he brings it into the house, which turns out to be a howling error. So he's a kid, right? He's, he's absolutely a kid. But while I was writing it, I had this, you know, um, this adult worry about, you know, what if he, you know, what if he does something else dumb? You know, there was, I just was aware that there would be at least in some readers, a kind of um, a parental or maternal worry about a young, a young child out there. But there, again, it's offset by this 
you know, sense of freedom and the sense of relief of being out of town, out from under the nuns, you know, benign rules and regulations and care, um, away from people. So many characters in this book are, um, they're, they're hermits. They are solitaries. They are very comfortable in their own skin and with their own um, quietude. They consider uh, the wilderness to be nurturing. Um, and they, all of them to a greater or lesser degree, kind, even the nun really, kind of look at town life and other people and crowds and civilization as basically being a little bit uncivilized. And for Jack, that is... It's lit- it's literally true. He uh, he grew up in that cabin, and as soon as he can possibly do it, he goes back to it, even if he's com- mostly completely alone. It's a sense of freedom he has. And I should probably um, just say, for people who haven't read it yet, um, you know, it's it's the the death of Mary Bolton right at the beginning of the novel, so it's not a spoiler uh, that precipitates. Um, the the narrative uh, because William Moreland, whom we heard about up the tree, uh, has has decided that he needs to um, accumulate um, some wealth for his son to ensure his financial well being, and so he he puts Jack in the care of an Anglican nun uh, in in Banff who really wants to be Jack's mother. Um, which becomes a bit of a problem. Um, (laughs) And so, as you say, uh, as soon as Jack is able, uh, he's out of there and and wants to go back to the only home he has known. The scene where we meet him, the the first time we we see Jack, he's, he's outside the back of the nun's house with his back to a tree, and he has his hands over his face and he's weeping. He's weeping over his mother, he's weeping with frustration over his father, his father's choice of um, yeah, to just go and pilfer the heck out of uh, mining camps and logging camps and small towns and things like that into a crew as much money as he possibly can the only way William Moreland knows how, which is burgling. And it, it's just, it's awful for the kid. He, he, by the time he gets to the cabin, he's pretty much had it with adults. And I get we probably, if we're all honest, we remember that feeling. <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> Jack worries um, that he resembles his father in some ways, right? Like the fact that he he leaves without telling the nun. It makes him think about when his dad would go off wandering and leave him with his with his mother. I think anybody who read The Outlander knows that William Moreland was a wanderer and uh, had shall we say, um, commitment issues. But um, by the time we see them as a family, Mary, it's pretty clear that Mary understands that herself. It doesn't worry her that he uh, has to go rambling, but it does It does um, annoy and frustrate and hurt the kid. He doesn't like his father disappearing the way he does. So the idea that, or the realization later on that Jack himself has done a similarly savage thing to the nun um, really is an unbearable thought to him. Um, and, and really he's, he's not stupid. Uh, the, it, he has hurt the nun and 
he pro- perhaps knows her better than anybody else in the world, um, having lived so closely with her and having basically what amounts to love from her and care. And she's opened up to him in a way that she didn't open up to anybody else, but she's an extremely, she's wound very tight. And the betrayal of what she feels is her son uh, leaving her, uh, it, it's, it's quite traumatic and damaging to her. You know, for all that William Moreland may go wandering, he's devoted to them. Uh, and I mean, he has his wife's um, or partner's initials on his boots, right? So he, <laughs> there's that sort of notion that he will he will be back. But Jack also learns so much from his mother, right? We see him sewing, for instance. Um, and, you know, he remembers his mother saying that she was going to teach him to sew so he wouldn't be a burden to his wife. So, you know, he's he's skilled in all kinds of ways. Can I tell you about that? Um, that was actually a quote from my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother taught my, my father was a, an expert sewist. Um, he was a lawyer and then became, didn't like law, so he became a teacher. He loved teaching, um, but he knew how to sew. Um, he knew how to uh, do all the stuff around the house, like ironing and things like that, simply because his mother, who had had nothing but boys, deliberately taught them all, uh, whether it stuck or not, how to do that kind of stuff. And she, she did say, this is so that you won't be a burden to your wife. <laughs> I just thought that was just such a lovely, uh, uh, you know, lovely thing. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned the letters that William Moreland uh, has uh, put into the soles of his boots with little nail heads. And that's one of a number of references to uh, Huckleberry Finn, um, Huck's father, who one of the most negative characters in all of Western literature has uh he has crosses um nailed into the uh into the heels of his boots uh in order to scare away the devil and there are a number of scenes that i i stole uh and you know repurposed for myself from huckleberry finn so one is when um william Moreland crawls through the window of jack's uh bedroom in the nun's house the nun doesn't know he's there He's quite terrifying looking. He's got long black hair. He's soaked. He's, you know, he's, he's been out a long time. But he is a loving father. And, and in stark contrast to Huck, Huckleberry Finn's father, who's trying to beat money out of the kid, he's turning up with a Christmas present of, you know, the first haul of cash that he's stolen, which really just further enrages poor Jack. And... Another scene that I stole was um, later on, uh, Jack encounters somebody violent. And I, I, I took that from a, another scene with, uh, with Huckleberry Finn and his father. And it was, it was a scene that absolutely terrified me when my father read me the book. Um, but you see where these things end up. Uh, that, you know, it traumatized me. And... Uh, I found a way to like use it for my own purposes later, and hopefully, uh, hopefully it worked. You've you've used the term repurposed, but it's it's kind of um, redeemed in a way, right? That's certainly what it felt like. It felt like I'm going to fix this. You know, this is a really horrible father, and 
you know, I'm uh, William Moreland is not a horrible father, and I, Jill Adamson, had a had a pretty good dad, so it was a way for me to, uh, uh, yeah, just fix it. And I, you know, I found myself thinking. Um, there's a study of historical fiction that talks about the form having the potential to to, and I'm quoting here, create a living empathy, a live connection between then and now. Um, and that potential that potential seems so much greater when there's a child or or adolescent as the focus. That's a, that is a very good point, and that's a really lovely quote, actually. Yes, and and one of the special elements of uh, we we keep saying historical fiction, but uh, fiction set not now. I mean, you could really only you could go back only ten years, and things would have been so different, and people reading the book would remember. So I'm old enough to remember when uh, there was one phone in the house and it was hardwired to the wall. And, uh, you know, if you broke your leg, you had to crawl to it, <laughs> you know? I was thinking back to I, I'm what you were saying about, um, you know, the fact that in 1917, women are starting to get the vote, but you've got um, someone like, Sister Beatrice, um, or Amelia, <laughs> or Amelia Claude, um, who's clearly—I uh, mean, she's she. I mean, at at one point, she's friends with Mary Bolton, um, but she does not have the. I mean, she will strategically wear the nun's habit when she thinks that's what she needs to do. But she's also the daughter of a banker but she i mean she just seems profoundly frustrated uh, she's a sad person at some level because she's never no one has ever really loved her, her father um really wasn't didn't have any sense of how to be a loving father didn't care he was a banker and he was all about um money and profits and you know boards of directors and things like that uh, she didn't have a mother. Uh, she had, a, you know, being a rich person, she had a nanny. And then one day, and the nanny was the closest thing to a mother she knew and was just a young 14-year-old girl, really. Uh, uh, and then one day, dad fires mom. Dad fires the, the only thing she's ever known that was that was loving to her. So she ends up going to uh, um, an abbey. She ends up converting to... Uh, Anglicanism, I think, really to get an education and to get the hell out of her father's house and to basically stuff it up his nose, really. It's a way for her to just reject him and and everything he stands for entirely. And it's really, you, despite uh, some revelations later on, it's really a very good time for her, but it's not, there's no love. And when she ends up coming back to look after her father, which she doesn't want to do, and then her father dies. She, through various, you know, severe changes, ends up with this child. And it's really, it's really, uh, um, what can I, how can I put it? It's, it's the first kind of genuine love she's felt in a very long time. She's, a, she's quite, a, she's very strong, but she's brittle and she's very much alone. And so that is part of the reason that she's really so distraught and becomes increasingly um, frantic uh, to get Jack back. 
Now, fortunately, Jack does um, have a couple of other people who are looking out for him. Wilson, certainly the the outfitter. Um, but I, I do, I mean, before we run out of time, I, I definitely want to talk about Samson Beaver because he's another, he and, and his wife, Lena, and their family are an influence on Jack as well. In part, that was my discomfort with leaving a child completely alone in the woods. Um, and I also wanted to talk about the possibility, whether it's realistic or not, in Banff National Park itself or in any place like that, where that there would be people who, and I, I think it is possible, who would live um, as remotely or at least as privately as possible. And uh, I call, uh, I think of him as the, the character who calls himself Samson Beaver. He has changed. That's not his real name. And I think we never, we never know what his name at birth was. He was born um, Muskogee. His father was Muskogee and his mother was an English woman. And through a fairly um, sort of troubled youth and a somewhat violent youth, actually, he, he was a deputy U.S. Marshal. And uh, that, I don't think that was a particularly, uh, there, there was, there would, it would have been a, a fairly violent job, I think. Um, and I wanted to talk about a person who, as a young person, kind of like Jack, and in perhaps in contrast to Jack, um, really wanted to reinvent himself. Um, and as you said, people rename themselves, they wear different clothing. Um, I think it's, it's natural for some people to, to want to uh, not have this identity to choose their identity and then the, the identity um, that they've chosen in the case of the deputy U.S. Marshal is so traumatic to uh, his name is uh, Wawash Day at that point. His name is Wa his friends call him Wash. Um, he, he's just damaged by it and leaves uh, Oklahoma where he basically where he grew up and heads to Canada where he meets a woman who you know, the again, the sort of the uh, the one good influence in your life that helps you settle down, that helps you understand who you are. And, and she's that person. She is Nakoda, and she's fluent in Nakoda. So that would mean that Samson is fluent in a number of languages, including English. I'd say Muskogee, he's probably fluent in maybe Seminole or something like that. But he is having raised children. Uh, you, you know, they would have spoken Nakoda at home. So uh, there's about um, 10 lines of Nakoda dialogue in the book. And obviously I needed, I tried to cobble together. Uh, and they're very simple phrases like, are you hungry and come over here and that kind of thing. Um, but I, I needed to get them checked. And I'm extraordinarily lucky because uh, I was put in touch with a, a a Nakoda teacher and um, translator and proofreader um, uh, named Lloyd Buddy Wesley, and he's from the Nakoda Nation in uh, Morley, Alberta. He's a, he calls himself a, a, a tribal historian and a cultural advisor. And once I actually got in touch with him, he was, it was so wonderful dealing with him. He has a system of using diacritical marks to um, identify the particular sounds uh, in the Nakoda language. So that was really interesting for me to kind of talk back and forth with him about how, 
how this stuff works. And he's a very, very generous and lovely man. It's important to acknowledge um, the territory, um, you know, and the the people and the legacies of settler colonialism, because, I mean, Treaty 7 was uh, signed in 1877. So, you know, 1917 is 40 years on, and the, the Stony Nakoda or uh, Iahe Nakoda are being denied access to their traditional lands. Ironic or just really just filthy, really, that uh, the treaties and I presume, I haven't read Treaty 7, but I presume one of the things was protecting um, hunting and trapping rights and, you know, uh, and what the what the government did was to just say that no, none of the uh, indigenous, not just Nakota people, but indigenous um, uh, hunters weren't allowed in the park. And it was clearly in order to maximize the pleasure of tourist uh, hunters. It's, it's another element of the novel that, that uh, I talk about the Castle Mountain internment camp. And I did a lot of research at the uh, Library and Archives Canada um, and read, you know, all kinds of government uh, documents. And it's interesting that uh, internment operations for the, like, I think it was called the Dominion of Canada at the point, at that point, um, referred to it as an internment camp and as a concentration camp, more or less interchangeably. And that's, that's what it was. Um, and they, the, the, uh, the prisoners of war who were considered to be Austrian, but were by and large Ukrainian um, and Galician and Ruthenian and uh, a couple of other, um, a couple of other groups, but by and large uh, Ukrainian, you know, some of them, some of them weren't even quite sure what had gone wrong and how they had ended up in that camp. Um, there was a, the, the camp itself was leaky. They, they really, despite the fact that it was out in the middle of nowhere, it's, it's security was that even if somebody did escape, they would have almost nowhere to go, no skills, nothing to, uh, not really not enough clothing. And they, they would, and they mostly did end up wandering back or wandering off onto the road and being picked up. But there was one, um, one successful escape, and it turns out it was a 16-year-old boy named John Condro. And I loved that story so much, um, the idea that a young boy actually managed to, hopefully he didn't die, but, you know, he, he, he got out of there. Um, and, and so I just felt like I had to write about that, and I had to, um, I had to have Jack actually encounter this encounter this kid so again this is one of the elements of of uh of writing a historical novel especially set uh, during a world war there's the pleasure and also the burden of of research and the need to get it right to get it right in terms of what was happening with indigenous people what was happening you know with the prisoners of war and everything that was so specific to that particular that particular and very beautiful area when I was reading the novel, it was in part because of, of where it's set, but I was reminded of Guy Vanderhaeg's uh, trilogy. Of, um, and Vanderhaeg uh, said in an interview that the historical novel is always about contemporary issues in disguise. <laughs> and the, the fact of the matter is that a uh, uh, hundred years, 200 years ago, people People were people. They had their worries. They had their um, anxieties. 
um, they wanted connection or they wanted, you know, lack of connection. And there's, there are universals that, uh, that will speak. And especially in a historical novel, he's quite right that there is a, uh, there is an impulse on the part of the contemporary novelist who is writing a historical novel um, to bring now into the book in some way. Um, and by its very nature, a historical novel talks to us about where we are now because we see how far we've come. Thank you all for listening today. And thanks again to Susan Berkwood, Jill Adamson, and Aslan Hunter for participating in Writers' Festival Radio. The Writers' Festival, including this podcast, is made possible by support from the Government of Canada, from the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Canada Council for the Arts, and the Ontario Arts Council. It is also supported by charitable donations from generous individuals like you. If you enjoy what we do, please consider making a tax-creditable donation at writersfestival.org. Join us next Friday, September 11, for Episode 4, Living with Dying, Part 1, featuring Dakshana Bhaskaramurti and Anita Leahy. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Music